It is so good to be with you guys. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, my name is JD. If you guys have never met me, I'm the Crosstalk Pastor here at Cypress Creek Church. And, and truly, it is so good to be with you guys. I, I feel like I say that every week, but it, it is really one of the great joys in my life to get the chance to be with you guys. So many college ministries are, were not meeting when they came back from Thanksgiving. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity to spend time with you guys. Uh, it really is the highlight of my week. And I don't know about you guys. I think that your guys' week with finals coming up probably started stressful. Mine did not start stressful and ended up becoming one of those things where it was like 10,000 things got piled on all at once. And then we went from a chill week to like, absolute like crisis mode really fast. I've got like a super sick dog at home. It's like waking up at four in the morning to the sound of a dog throwing up is just the worst noise in the world. And so what I would like to do, I need to take a deep breath. I don't know about whether you guys need to take a deep breath, but let me just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful to have a time and a space set apart in our life to just worship you, God. And so, Father, we come before you, Jesus, and, and we release all of our stuff. God, we release our finals. We re release our stress and our anxiety and our worry and the to-do list that seems like it's always adding up right now, God. And we set those at your feet tonight, Jesus. And we ask that your word would speak to us, God, that your gospel of love and of grace would come through, Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen. We have, if you guys were to open your Bible to the table of contents, right, we've got four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And they all tell the story of Jesus's birth, life, death, and resurrection in, in remarkably different ways. And they include different aspects of his life, and they're written in different literary styles. And so when we look at these four books, what really what we're doing is we're seeing the expression of these gospel authors in their heart for understanding who Jesus was, of the Messiah. And so when we read these, what we're seeing here is their sense of how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. And so when we look at these different authors, they come to the life of Jesus in, in different ways. And out of those four books, we as the institution of the church, so often during this season, we look at two. Because only Matthew and Luke tell us the Christmas story. Only Matthew and Luke tell us the Christmas story. And, and we're going to kind of dig into that. It, it was kind of like a, you know, there are those sermons that are kind of like a softball, right? It's like when you get into December and you only know you get to hang out with you guys once, it's like, oh, that's easy. We're going, we're going Christmas. Like, eh. I don't know really what else you would talk about. And so Luke, Luke, for example, was written to a Gentile crowd. And that's you and me, Right? And so it's written in a way that we would understand it best. If you look at, it's the same way our, our history textbooks are written. It's this objective historical perspective, right? And so when we hear the story told, for instance, in like the old Peanuts Christmas movie, it comes out of the book of Luke because that's how we as the audience would hear it best. Now, Matthew, Matthew is remarkably different because Matthew is written to a largely Jewish crowd. And so it's written in a way that this Jewish crowd would understand what Matthew was saying. And so we're gonna be in the book of Matthew today. And 
Matthew starts in a dramatically different way than the book of Luke. Instead of telling the story of Bethlehem and the birth and the manger and all of that good stuff, the book of Matthew starts with a genealogy. It starts with a genealogy and it goes on for 17 verses to open his gospel account. And today I'm gonna read this super exciting passage of scripture for you because I know that you came here to talk about genealogies and family trees. And for us to understand the importance of this passage, we have to understand that Jewish people care deeply, still care deeply about their genealogy. They care deeply about their family history. You know, in that culture, your background carries a lot of weight. It carries a ton of weight, and it's a big, big deal who you, who's in your family. It tells the story of your heritage and where your grandfather came from and your great-great-grandmother and your great-great-great-grandfather. And it tells this story all the way back. Do you guys have a friend where they have a story that precedes them? Like something that goes before someone, like if I were to talk about Uresti, it's like, oh yeah, that's the bus guy. Like that guy's the bus guy, right? But there's like a distinguishing characteristic or a story that goes before Austin. In the same way, I've got a buddy who he was caught, uh, this was 2014, he was caught in a hundred year historic flood on the Pecos River. He did like 30 miles in a half hour. The river got up so high. And so when I go places with him, it's like I don't even exist because people are like, you're the flood guy. You're the flood guy. And so the, these stories go before us, right? It's the same sort of deal in Jewish culture that genealogies do. And they go before us and they tell the story of history that we get to live into. And so that's the same sort of thing that's happening in this passage today. That's the importance of this because it tells us the history of where Jesus came from. And it starts, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac was the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram and Ram, the father of Aminadab and Aminadab, the father of Nashon and Nashon, the father of Salmon and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Were you, were you with me on that? Did I go too fast? <laughs> it's a weird deal when we, when we dive into genealogy. If you were to look at like the book of Numbers, you're like, nah, that one shouldn't even be included. Like kind of like toss it out. I don't know all of these names. Why is it important? Do you guys know your own genealogy? Do you guys know your own family history? Have any of you guys ever gone back and done like the Ancestry.com thing or anything like that? I haven't. I never will. I don't understand why someone would send their DNA to the internet. That's like my own personal conspiracy theory. Like, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but I don't want to send my DNA into like the, into the Google world, you know, that somehow someone can get a hold of that like information. It's just not going to happen for me. <laughs> But according to studies, genealogy is actually the second most popular hobby in the United States. Second most popular hobby. And if you look at the research of people our age, it's actually much, much less. Like we, we don't care near as much about our family history as, as our grandparents did. And our great grandparents, you guys have those grandparents who will like sit down and tell you all about your family history and things like that. I've got, I got it on both sides. Like I can't go anywhere without hearing about it. And of course, um, 
my dad wanted it a couple of years ago. He wanted it. We bought it for him for Christmas. We're sitting around. We're into the new year, and he's sitting there. He's got his results, and sitting in the family room, and he starts to tell me about it. He's like super, super excited to find out his ancestry and stuff, and I was just so thankful that there was a football game on because I could just do that like fake listening thing, like, uh-huh, yeah, mm-hmm. No, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Didn't even matter if it was like the Cowboys playing or something like that. It was just like, ah, I don't really care. And I'm sorry, Dad, if you're, if you're watching right now. But if you can picture that, then you can picture the Jewish people who are reading this genealogy and they're like into genealogies. In the same way that like a CrossFitter is so into CrossFit that they can't get out of a conversation without telling you that like CrossFit is who they are at their core. Like it has to be, that's, that's the only way of doing things. But that's like genealogy is how you told who you were in Jewish culture. You could go back for generations. And I don't know if you guys know your ancestry, but I only know mine back to my great grandparents. But the Jewish people can track their back to all the way back to Abraham. It's that important. And that's 2,000 years before Jesus. But they've kept such good records because it's so meaningful to them that they can take it all the way back to that point. And in fact, if if we look at this genealogy in these 17 verses, it's divided into three parts. It's divided into three parts, and these thirds tell us the entire history of the Old Testament. And quick sidebar, if you ever want to be an Old Testament scholar, if you can look through this genealogy of Jesus and you know all of the names in there, you're well on your way to being like an academic. <laughs> like, should work on the master's and the PhD already, but, but you're there. And in fact, if I'm gonna give you guys a little tool here. A pastor friend of mine showed this to me uh, several years ago, and it shaped the way that I lead and teach the Old Testament forever. And from Abraham, well, I'll start over here because it's left to right. Yeah, Abraham to Jesus is 2,000 years, right? And we can picture that because there's 2,000 years between us well, Jesus and us, right? So it's an equidistant amount of time. And inside of that amount of time, there are sections that tell us the story of the Old Testament. You can think of this in, the, in like the shape of a capital N. And so what you have here is from Abraham to David is this upturn. This is a thousand years in this upturn where you see the ascendancy of Israel. Then you hit David and more specifically King Solomon and you see this downturn until they go in to exile. And then from the exile to Jesus, the Messiah, you see another upturn. That right there is the Old Testament move. If you guys were to look at this and boil it down to its most simple, simple, that's it right there. And so what we see here in this this upturn is the ascendancy of Israel. David takes the throne, Israel begins to grow and to flourish, becomes a world power at the time. And there's this thousand year period that tells you all the way from Abraham to Moses, uh, to the judges, to to King David here, right? And then so what happens here is that you have Solomon takes over and you begin to see a descent because the nation splits into two. You have Israel and you have Judah and they begin infighting between each other and they begin to treat each other poorly and injustice kind of rules the day in this sense. And and the the nation began to slide into oblivion. If you guys were to read 1 and 2 Kings, it's the story of that. And what you have here is is at at some point here at about like 500, oh gosh, I can't even, I'm not going to put years on it. 
But as, as you see these kings go on, what happens is Babylon comes in and it takes over first the nation of Israel and then Judah. And when, when the Jewish people were taken over by the Babylonians, they dispersed the Jewish people all over the known world. It's called the diaspora. It's called the diaspora. And the story of the people of Israel at this point in history was one on the very brink of destruction because the temple is destroyed. They've been kicked out of their homeland. They're assimilating into culture. They're becoming more and more like everyone else at this point in time. And at this moment here, at this rock bottom moment, right, is when they recognize their need for God and they begin to turn back to him. And you see God starts to respond to that and, and the Jewish people start to return to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple and you see this ascendancy until you hit Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that whole story is told in this genealogy. But because you and I, both of us, because we don't understand the names, we don't understand why this passage of scripture is even in here. We kind of want to throw it out just like every time you try and read the Bible in a year and you get to numbers and you're like, that's it, like I'm done. That's where it almost always falls apart. But it's told right here in the genealogy of Jesus. And we, and we think that, that it's super boring, but it's because we just don't understand. We, we haven't developed a knowledge to the point that, that we get it. We, we get what Matthew is trying to do here. And what Matthew wants to do is before he ever talks about the sheep and the manger and the wise men and all of that good stuff, he wants to tell us the story of what God has been doing in the world since Abraham. And he wants to paint that picture for us because then the story of Jesus has so much more meaning when we understand the rest of it. And it does it in this very unusual way and we don't realize it. But someone who is reading this passage from a Jewish background gets their mind blown by all of it. So we're going to hop back in, and I'm going to do this much, much slower this time. I promise. I promise. It'll be much, much slower, and we're just going to walk through some names. We're going to talk about names. We're going to draw out kind of some of the things that God wants to teach us through this genealogy. And the first of which is that it starts here in, in verse 1, and it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. If you look at the Gospel of Mark, for example, it kind of wants to unfold who Jesus is throughout the entire narrative. But Matthew here, even in verse one, wants to lay it out for you first and foremost. He says, here is Jesus. Here is who he is. He is the one. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one that you have waited so long for. And here in this, in this very short statement, he's stating the divinity of Jesus. Before you even get to the second verse, he's saying, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the Messiah. You can't escape Matthew's gospel without realizing that. That's the whole point. And then once he tells you that he's the one who comes from God, he says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And here in this moment, now he goes from displaying the divinity of Jesus and he talks about the humanity of Jesus. Because it's super important for us to understand that Jesus was fully God, but he was fully man the son of Abraham, the son of David. In the Old Testament, you have these two promises that drive the entire narrative. You have these two promises that drive the entire narrative. The first promise is a promise to Abraham. And he makes this, God makes this promise to Abraham and he says that I'm going to give you a son, one who's going to come after you. And what we see, if you guys remember the story, is that Abraham and Sarah, they can't get pregnant. 
They can't have a child. But God promises them that they're going to have a son. And we have this long story of belief and unbelief and sin and repentance and healing that takes place. But finally, Abraham has Isaac. Finally, Abraham has Isaac. And Abraham was given the promise that you will be a people for all peoples. And he tells Abraham to look up in, at the stars at night. And he says that I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than the stars in heaven. And God tells him, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you can be a blessing to others. I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing to others. That's the first promise. The second promise is the promise to David. Second promise is the promise to David. And the promise that God made to David was that he was going to have a son and that God would establish his kingdom forever that God would establish his kingdom forever and that there was going to be someone coming out of his lineage and he's going to be the Messiah for the whole world. You see, there are these two promises and this is what's in the ascendancy because you start with Abraham here. You start with Abraham here and God's going to say, wait to Abraham. He's going to, it's a promise of waiting because that's how genealogy and heritage and families unfold, right? Because Abraham has a son and his son has a son and his son and his grandkids have more kids. And that's how we see this family tree take place. And the promise to, to David of a Messiah was one of hope. So the promise to Abraham here was one of waiting and the promise to David was one of hope that one would come and he would bring hope and he would bring healing and that he was going to establish this kingdom forever and that you have this assurance of this hope because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. For those people who are reading this from a Jewish background for the first time, they're getting their mind blown. We're not even out of the first sentence. And they're like, oh my gosh, I see what Matthew is trying to do here. And then he launches into it and he says that Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And right here, anyone who's reading this is going to stop dead in their tracks because there's something you guys need to know about Jewish genealogies. They don't include women. Sorry, ladies. And we can talk about that a whole nother time. But Jewish genealogies don't include women. And so if you're reading this for the first time and you're Jewish, you're going to ask the question, what is that about? What is that about? Why, why is Tamar in there? Do any of you guys remember the story of Tamar? Only a couple of you guys. That's kind of what I expected, but it's, it's really not a pretty one. The story of Tamar is not a pretty one because you have Judah and Judah's the dad, right? And he marries his first son to Tamar. And, and that son dies before, before they have a son. And so Judah goes and he promises Tamar his second son. His second son, they get married. His second son dies before they can have children too. And so Judah promises Tamar his third son. But Judah doubts that Tamar can actually have kids. So he fails in his promise. He fails in his promise and doesn't marry his third son to Tamar. So Tamar, she really wants to have a kid by this family. She wants someone out of this family to be the dad. And so what she does is she dresses up like a prostitute. She seduces Judah. 
And then she gets pregnant. And then she gets pregnant. And she has a child named, who is named Perez. And you didn't even know that because you read the genealogy too quickly. We read it trying to get to the Christmas story. And what you don't understand is that God was doing something here that was just remarkable. It's just remarkable. And what Matthew is doing is he wants to stop you. He wants to stop you and he wants you to, to think. He wants to make you consider and he wants to shock you because he wants to talk about the outcast and the black sheep when no one wants to talk about the outcast. He wants to talk about the person in the family that no one else wants to talk about. And he wants to bring it to the forefront. And he brings it to the front and center when he talks about Tamar. And it says, And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, another woman, and another prostitute. But more importantly, she wasn't just a woman or a prostitute, but she was a Canaanite. Because if we remember our Old Testament well, when the Israelites entered the promised land, they were supposed to wipe out the Canaanites. But they didn't obey God and they began to intermarry. And here she is, a Canaanite, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, an outsider. Not only a woman, but someone who wasn't a part of the people of God. And Matthew wants her to be front and center in the genealogy. Now, we also need to remember that she is the one who hid the spies and lowers them out of her window and down the wall. But I don't think that Matthew includes her in the genealogy of Jesus because of her heroics. I think he includes her because she's an outsider. She's someone outside of the fold. And the Jewish people who are reading this are going to start to understand that there's something going on here. And that the gospel of Mark is going to bring that out as you read the entirety of the book and hear Jesus' story. But he doesn't stop there. And he says, And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Again, this, is, this woman is a Moabite. She's an outsider, someone outside of the fold. And if you're counting, she is the third woman mentioned in the ascendancy here when everything is on the up and up. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And here we begin to turn the corner, right? We see the descent of the nation of Israel. And it says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, by the wife of Uriah. And just so you know, since I'm more teaching than preaching today, the wife of Uriah is Bathsheba. And the genealogist won't even name her. And I believe that he does it for a very specific reason. I believe that he won't name her because instead... Matthew chooses to name David's sin. It's not important that she's a woman. It's important that we see David's sin, the wife of Uriah, not Bathsheba. Because if we remember the story of, of Bathsheba, what happens is David sees Bathsheba, he likes her, he takes advantage of her, and she gets pregnant. And then they try to cover that up and that doesn't work. And so what he does is he sends Uriah to the, to the front lines to be killed. And that doesn't work either as the prophet Nathan outs David 
as the one who has done it. And everything, including his kingdom, falls apart because of his disobedience. And Matthew points this out here in the genealogy of the Messiah. And why would he do that? He's mentioned four outsiders already. Well, I think he wants to teach us something, and he teaches us that through this genealogy. Something that you've skirted over for years and years, just as I have. And the primary thing he wants to teach us is that the salvation of God in Jesus Christ is messy. Because when it enters into my life, it enters into a messy life. And when he enters into your life, he enters into a messy life. We think that we have to have it all together, that we have to present this pristine picture, that we have to do good enough or to be good enough to come to God. But when God breaks into our lives, he breaks into the messiness. He breaks into the messiness. And the writer wants you to know that right up front. Because when he gets to Jesus, then you begin to see it. And when Jesus came, he came came for the sick, the lost, and the broken. He didn't come for the healthy. That's why he tells the parable of the lost coin. That's why he tells the parable of the lost sheep. That's why he tells the parable of the prodigal son. We've talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Why? Because the salvation of God continues to enter into our life in the same way today. The same God found in the genealogy is the same God that we have a chance to come into relationship with today. Because Jesus enters into the hurt and the brokenness and he walks right into that and he begins to work in miraculous ways. That he begins to reconcile. He begins to heal. And the second thing you need to see is how deep the love of God is. Right in the genealogy, we see the depths of God's love. As he walks into the people's lives who were not chosen or pristine. Really, when it comes to Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, David, he walks into the lives of people who have very checkered pasts, who didn't come from the right families or the right backgrounds or had massive mistakes, glaring mistakes. And God walks right into their life because God's love was there for them. And if you can't understand that in the genealogy, then Quite plainly, you're going to have a hard time understanding Christ's willingness at the end of this book to die for you and for me. Because it's found right here at the beginning. His love for us is so deep. And the third thing you have to see in this genealogy is not only the depth of God's love, but the breadth of it as well. That it's so wide that it includes even you and me. You see, no good Jewish genealogy would include a Canaanite, a Moabite, a prostitute, and they definitely wouldn't have dissed King David in public. But that's right what Matthew does. And he doesn't do it to bring up scandal, but he does it to demonstrate the width of God's love, that God's love spans socioeconomic class, that it spans race, that it spans creed, that it spans background. It spans money. 
And it includes us. The messiness, the depth, and the width of God's love is shown in the genealogy over and over again. And when we begin to understand that, we see God for who he really is. Let's go on. It says, in starting in verse 7, And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And your eyes are rolling back in your head. You just can't handle it anymore. But anyone who's reading this from a Jewish standpoint is getting their mind blown by what they're reading. And I could stop at almost every name in this genealogy and we could see how God worked in miraculous ways in their life. That the living God worked in miraculous ways in their life. I mean, in our meeting on Tuesday, Paulina, Jacob, Emma, and I were talking about these names. And we just couldn't help but we're sitting there getting excited. We're, we're on Google. We're like, which ones were good kings? Which ones were bad kings? But every one of these, as we researched it, you just see, you see and experience the living God working in their lives, whether they did the right thing or the wrong thing. And there were plenty of both. Verse 12 says, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen. Can I just give you guys a tip? Here is your tip for the day. At some point in time, you're going to be in a community group, and someone is going to ask you to read a passage of scripture just like this. And you're going to think to yourself that there's no way I can pronounce all of the names in, in that passage. There's just not a chance. The key is say it fast and say it with confidence. No one knows. No one knows whether you say it right. Just read it and don't second guess yourself. It almost doesn't even matter if you say it differently the, the first time or the second time. Just say it and say it confidently and move on because no one knows. I do it in seminary. I'm getting a master's in the Bible and it works. I'm telling you, it works. And Nathan, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. If anyone's counting, this is the fifth woman in our genealogy, the fifth woman in the genealogy of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And 14 generations from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ. That's the Old Testament move right there. And if I can level with y'all for a minute, here's what I did. I went back because I had apparently nothing better to do and I counted the generations. I counted all of the generations in those 17 verses and I counted 14 generations from the deportation to Christ. Thinking I can do this math thing that's more fingers than I have, but I've got toes, we'll be all right. And I felt really confident, it was 14. 
It also says it. Feel, feel good. And then I had a buddy who was like, you're kind of wrong. There's only 13 generations. There's only 13 generations. And I went back and counted, and he was right. There's only 13 generations named between the deportation to Christ. And it blows my mind. Do you guys understand what that means? I don't think Matthew did it on accident. He was, a, he was an accountant. He counted for a living. I think this is super intentional. I think it is super intentional because here's what I think he meant by it. I think he wanted us to realize that we are included in the family of God. I think he wanted us to realize that we are included in the genealogy of Jesus, that we are adopted through Christ into his lineage. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty, which Paul is quoting from 2 Samuel. This was the plan all along. For the entirety of time, that we would be included in the family of God. And it's right here. Matthew is starting out his gospel by saying, you are included in the family of God. Now, let me tell you the story of your salvation. You are included. And as Matthew unfolds this for us through the rest of his gospel, we come to this adoption only by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross the one we place our hope in. For there in the work of Jesus, the messiness of our life begins to make sense under his lordship. And the depth of his love pours out on us in a way we never could have imagined because every other love is contingent upon what we do or bring. And God says, no. It's a free gift offer. And we experience the width of his love, the breadth of his love that includes even us as sinful and broken people. And out of our brokenness, we can experience his love in a deep way during this Christmas season. Because ultimately, our genealogy tells the story of our life. And when it tells the story of our life, it tells the story of a God who broke into time and space and has been working in our life, calling us to him. Even when our sinful, in our sinfulness and our brokenness, we said no and we turned and walked away from him. He said yes to us. So we might know his redeeming love, so that we might know life in Christ. And my hope is that in this Christmas season, that love, The love of Christ is something that we can hold with us, something we can be reminded of, and something that can be at the forefront of our minds. That when you go home to spend the holidays with your family, and we all either have great families, broken families, messed up families, ugly families, that the love of God can be at the forefront of the way in which we interact with our family that the love of God could be present in the way that we speak, in the way that we act, in the way that we treat 
those around us, even when they're undeserving of it. I was talking to someone literally on Monday. He was telling me the story of, of this first time he'd gone home for Thanksgiving in years. And it was the first time all of his brothers were going to be home for Thanksgiving. And he goes home and he's like, my family is messed up. My family is messed up. This is going to be a total crap show. And he walks in and he's like, the Lord has been working on me peace all year. And I was able to walk into my family in situations where I would normally get upset, in situations where I would normally lose my cool, when I would say something hurtful, the love of God allowed me to love my family. The love of God allowed me to treat people kindly. And he's like, and it permeated my whole house. It brought peace to the whole house because we were choosing love. We were choosing the peace that God had given us over all of the stuff. And he's like, the stuff didn't go away. The stuff is still there. It's just as present. It's just as dysfunctional. But in abiding in the peace that God brings through his love, he was able to begin to plant those seeds in his home by the way that he acted, the way that he loved, and the way that he spoke to the people around us. For therein lies the gospel of Jesus Christ. 